Welcome to Pathways to Resilience, the podcast where real people share real stories helping us build our playbook toward resilience. And now here's our host, Melissa Santos. Welcome back to Pathways to Resilience. Appreciate you tuning back in. I am honored uh, to have with me today, Kathy Chavez Napoli. Um, And I know you will be too, uh, after hearing our conversation. Uh, Kathy is a community leader and former chair of the Portraits of Success program. She and her husband own Santa Clara Truck Wreckers for over 40 years, during which time Catherine was the first woman president of the Santa Clara County Auto Recyclers Association here in the Bay Area of California. She holds degrees in education and law and currently uh, leads a number of cultural programs um, in schools with young people um, and in the community as a board member of the Morgan Hill Historical Society. And I just have to say, um, when we met last week in our pre-meet, we went way over time because hearing <laughs> about Kathy's life and um, just the legacy that she's already have woven from the age of five um, was um, really inspiring. So welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm excited. Um, so gosh, when we talked, Kathy, who also goes by Kat, named after her grandfather. Um, so I'll call you Kat. Um, <laughs> we, we covered your life from five years old, starting um, working in the fields to 57 when you decided to go to law school as a wife and mother and business owner, um, and then to being a grandmother. And so there was so much, but what really struck me through all of it was um, the connection to culture, the importance of the connection to culture um, that you has been important in your life and that you feel so passionately about ensuring that next generations don't lose. Um, particularly in your community. So let's start with your early years, that five-year-old cat. Um, What were the cultural barriers that you experienced as an American-born farm-working family in California? Well, I think the challenges that we faced were from both sides, from the Latino community, because I didn't speak Spanish because I was born here and both my parents were born here but also from the greater community, the European community, where uh, the challenges were that I was expected to be just a farm worker. My parents were not English speaking, that stereotype. And then from my own community, wondering why I didn't speak Spanish. So uh, growing up, it was a little, it was challenging. And more importantly, because my father is Native American from California, we didn't know our history, we didn't know our heritage, and we didn't know our language because my grandmother died when my father was one. And my great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother on the Native American side died before my father was two. So I had no knowledge of my culture or my community until I went to school later as a college student and learned about it. And um, since I was an English speaker, When I went to college, I decided also to learn Spanish. So I embraced both cultures and I cherish them because some people just take their language and their culture for granted. 
How did you stay, what, how did culture and connection to it, even though you were sort of in between both of these worlds on the outside within your family structure, what was important for you as a young child, as far as that connection to both your Hispanic and your uh, Native American culture? Well, when I was growing up, we would always visit my grandparents on my mother's side and they spoke Spanish. And I always felt that kind of barrier of I couldn't really communicate with either one of them because I didn't speak Spanish. And uh, so I would speak in English and I would hope sometimes they would understand what I was saying. But we really didn't have any communications like most most grandparents have with their grandchild. And I didn't have that relationship at all on my father's side because both my grandparents had passed away. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that it was really important to me because I did want to communicate. And at that time, I don't think I shared this with you, but at that time they had this little dog called Chatty Cathy. (laughs) And I was a little Chatty Cathy, but only in English. (laughs) (laughs) So, and can you tell us, cause I just think this is really important for people to under, cause when we talk to, when we talk about connection to culture, I think particularly um, for communities of color, particularly for native American and Hispanic communities, the importance of that becomes even more so because of the, of how much um, it's been stripped away and continues to be stripped away. And you talked about your grandmother um, being sent to the Riverside boarding school um, when she was in third grade. Can you just talk to us about, cause I think so many people don't know what really, um, what happened to a lot of native American young people. Well, everything that I learned about my grandmother's experiences came from the national archives in the department of the interior, the Bureau of Indian affairs. And the way that I learned about what her experiences were was through letters she wrote because she was essentially a ward of the federal government. So everything her whole life was directed at the boarding school. So she came to Riverside from Susanville, which even today is about a 10 hour drive. But in 1910, 1915, that would have been several days on a train or in a wagon. Um, And so She was far, far away from her community. And what I learned through the letters was that she had to ask for basic things like she asked for a coat or personal items. And there was a set of letters that she wrote and it was over a several month period. And I could read, number one, I was struck by how beautiful her penmanship was. Mm. I was emotionally touched and moved by the fact that it was her writing. Mm -hmm. And um, my father used to lament that he had never had a mother. Mm -hmm. And he used to tell us that he was, that we were so lucky we had a mother. And I just wish I had found those records when he was alive. Mm -hmm. But it struck me that a young 10 or 12 or 13 year old woman going through puberty and becoming a woman needed to ask the government for personal items And they weren't sent to her. And she had to ask over and over and over for those basic needs to be met. And that's what struck me about how demeaning, how um, marginalized she must have felt and all the other young women and men that were there that were Native American, where they couldn't speak their own language. Mm -hmm. They didn't have any family near them. And um, 
they were wearing uniforms or the same kinds of dresses and the same kind of hairstyles. So they were in a boot camp almost. That's what it felt like to me when I was reading those documents. It was all very regimented and judgmental. And then I read something when my grandmother had passed, um, she had a land allotment. And there was when she died, uh, they had a, it went through probate court. And I looked at some of the legal documents. And what I saw in there was the Bureau of Indian Affairs still reporting whether number one, was she married in the Indian way, which is the custom, the Indian custom, they call it IC in the department's language or through some religious. And they were judging, making a judgment on how she got married. Mm. They made a judgment on whether she kept her house clean, whether she was a good homemaker. Um, And it said that she was a good homemaker, but it still felt like she's an adult. She's married. She has a family. Why are you able to even comment on that or make a judgment call on that? Or even know about that. Or even know about it. Why were you able to come in to her home and ask those kinds of invasive questions? And that's something that most Uh, People, even Latino communities don't know because Native Americans are the only people who have to prove who we are. Mm -hmm. I had to prove through the Indian census, through the um, documents, through uh, boarding schools, through land allotments, all of those different areas to prove that I am indeed a direct descendant from Native Americans. I'm I'm struck by... um the fact that you were talking about your grandmother's writings being about the age of 12 years old, because when we spoke, you said it was about when you were 12 years old, that you were tasked by your father to research and to complete the application to be admitted by your tribe. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't admitted to my tribe and that's the irony in, in the sixties, California passed some kind of legislation to give money back to documented California Indians. And that's where I learned and really understood that I was Native American because my father had a third grade education and there were these extensive forms that you had to fill out. You had to have a birth certificate, some kind of a baptismal record, and then you had your parents' uh, birth certificates to show the lineage, to show show you were a direct descendant of somebody who was from a California uh, Native tribe. Um, but we were not from a federally recognized tribe at that time. Um, and so I've filled out all the records for all my seven brothers and sisters and myself and my father. And I typed up a letter and I filled it out. And so if I look at the records from, they finally did a disbursement, I think when I was a freshman in college in 1970, and I can look at that whole packet of eight pages that shows all my family tree and all the documentation. And I can see the letter that I typed with my initials Mm. KC. I can see my writing where I filled out all the applications. And then later on, when we filed to be uh, a member of the Susanville Indian Rancheria, I had to provide all that documentation. And it just struck me that I had helped my dad fill that out when I was very young. And I think that was where my moment of empowerment began because when I was in elementary school prior to this, uh, I was called a beaner at Mildred Goss school by this boy, this uh, white boy. 
but I got sent to the office. And Mm -hmm. so that stayed with me because it was a negative experience. And I said, I don't understand why I'm having to go to the office. I didn't do anything. And so when I filled out all those documents for my father, it gave me such a sense of self. Mm -hmm. This is who I am. This is who my family is. This is where we come from. We were here before all of you. I have a stake in this. I have a confidence. And that's where it began, my self-assurance. It's I so um it's remarkable, and yet it's um it's worth pointing out that to have to wait till 12 years old, that most of us, as you said, don't have to prove who we are or where we came from, or um, you know, through applications or 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 um or even being able to to speak about it and learn about it in school. Um, and when I think about, and we'll talk more about how it connects to resilience, but many of our, our episodes have been about tapping into that self, tapping into our inner knowing. And I'm just struck by the fact that for you and so many that there was such, um, there was, you were robbed of some of what that inner self might even be. Um, and, you know, starting with your grandmother and before then, um, when it was, you know, we're taking, we're removing you from all that defines who you are in this world, stripping you of that culture, cutting your hair, putting you in a uniform, um, and really colonizing or Americanizing you, um, so that you kind of forget. Um, so just this idea of, of how much harder or much, uh, more of an intentional push it must be to tap into your self and your resilience when, when so much of society has tried to strip away of what that really is? Well, I think this is important because you have, by the questions you've asked, have made me look back at why I am the way that I am, why some people are like that. And it's even more striking, I think, because it's one thing to take a child at 10 or 15 years old or even eight years old away from their family and their community. But all, in addition, to use violence, intimidation, and brainwashing to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a mere, well, it just moved you from one place to the other. That was an absolute intent to destroy our community, to destroy our culture. And in the 1850s, to kill us Mm -hmm. with Peter Burnett's bounty on our lives. Mm -hmm. So people ask me, well, if you're Native American, why do you have a Mexican name? And in the 1850s to the 1900s during the gold rush period, Native Americans had to change their names and Mexican people survived and they took on, they went undercover. They went, used other names so that they could survive. and. And of course, obviously, many, as we've discovered in the boarding schools, didn't survive. Mm -hmm. And so knowing what they went through, learning what they went through, gave me such a resolve and a strength to know that we have to carry on. We have to tell our stories, because if we don't, even in today's world, it's very rare. And I do appreciate that you're willing to talk to us, but you don't hear about Native Americans. Mm -hmm. You hear about the Latino community, you hear about the Japanese internments, you hear about all these other cultures, but there's very little about the truth of Native Americans. Mm -hmm. So I do appreciate the opportunity to share my story because 
my story is a little small story compared to the greater story of Native Americans across the United States and California. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know that your story is small. Um, felt pretty big to me um, just in that and what it represents and what you've chosen, what you've chosen to do with that empowerment and that resolve. And so, and you, you kind of went here when you talked about being 12 years old, doing all that research about your family and really feeling that sense of empowerment and self and kind of where that resolve began. And when we, when we talked before, it was really, you talked about having this innate drive towards choice and the choices you wanted to make for yourself. Um, where do you think that drive, well, you kind of just described how that drive came from. So I guess a little more about where that drive came from and also how that has driven you um, through getting your education time and time again, being a, a business owner in a very male-dominated industry um, as a mother. How, how, how has that drive towards choice shaped um, shaped you? Well, I think that throughout my life, I've seen what happens when you're, when you're not able to speak or advocate for yourself. And I could see that in the community that I grew up in, South Cipuedes, where Cesar Chavez started. I could see that because we were from a poor community, a community of color, that we had 28680 come through our neighborhoods and they took our homes through eminent domain. And I saw that when you're a community of color and you don't have people who can advocate for you or you cannot advocate for yourself, you can literally lose your home. Mm -hmm. And that happened to us much like that was a repeat of the history of my family and my native American side where we lost our home, mm -hmm. our rightful homes. And because there were more powerful, articulate, educated people, we didn't have a lot of resources. And even though my parents spoke English and they hired an attorney, at the end of the day, the powers that be took our home along with all our friends and neighbors. And so what that showed me was that unless you're educated, unless you work hard, unless you're willing to fight for your home, then you're going to lose it. And so I think that's why I always understood as I looked around in my community, I felt that the way to overcome some of these challenges was to get an education. And I was very fortunate that both my parents loved to read. Mm. They gave me the great gift of a love of reading. They were always reading. I always read my seven brothers and sisters, all are excellent readers. So um, we really had that gift that we were given. And my mother always said, I only went to eighth grade. If I could, I would have stayed in school. I love to learn. Mm. And the other part of it was through no choice of my own, I was very fortunate that my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Amori, was just was a great teacher and she showed me care and loving. And she taught me to learn, to love learning. Mm. And that was also key. So I had some really great gifts that looking back, I can identify. But at the time, I didn't know. They gave me confidence. They told me I was smart, that I was able to do what I wanted if I put effort into it. So I learned how to read. 
I was smart enough to do this because I had reinforcement from my teachers and my parents. And I could look around and see that road. And that road was education. And I, I want to mention, because I think this is really important for us, for each of us to either look back on or to just to see how are we giving this to children in our lives and our communities now. Um, and I think you shared it with me, so I don't think you mind me saying, but tell me that um, that you also grew up in a in an alcohol, an abusive alcoholic family. Your father was um, struggled with with alcoholism and um, and so and and poverty and racism and so much trauma, right? All of these things. Yes. And yet through that, that when we talk about um, sort of protective factors or resiliency factors for, for that we can, that we can instill in young people, there was this gift, this love of reading, this encouragement towards education. Um, and, and then adults like your kindergarten teacher who encouraged that, who saw in you the love of learning and encouraged, encouraged that and how important that, that became for you again, even though you didn't know it at the time. Right. And now you're doing that and you've been doing that in schools for years. So what, what kinds of things are you bringing into, into classrooms for, for children? Well, I think it's really important for people to be honest with children because they see through you when you are not sincere. Mm -hmm. And the only way that you can be sincere is to share your real life experiences. My father was very smart. He taught himself to be a carpenter and a contractor. And that was something that he was born with. Um, And I was, he gave that gift to me as well as my, my mother. But I think that he also struggled because he was a proud man. Mm-hmm. And um, he was raising his family and paying his own way, even though he left home when he was about 12 or 13. And so he got injured. And after he got injured, he was on a roof and he fell off. And I remember the skill saw came and almost cut his leg off. Mm. And after that, he became an alcoholic and he was abusive. And Native Americans, for a majority of them, cannot process alcohol. And it's an addictive um, kind of a drug. And so he would become abusive when we were growing up. And I think being honest with kids to tell them, I've gone through this. I know what it's like to have an abusive father that would beat us and we'd have to leave the house. And um, then I couldn't go to school because, I mean, I would go to school, but I didn't have my homework ready. Mm -hmm. And what could I tell the teacher? Well, We spent the night in the car because we couldn't go home because my father was violent at that time. And there was no one that I could share that with. So what I decided to do was I decided to share those experiences with students at the elementary school level, at the middle school and high school and college level, because we don't always feel comfortable sharing those very personal experiences. So I share that with them. And I think that seeing a woman of color like myself, yes, it's good to be successful and have those degrees and have a business. But if we don't share the challenges that we had to overcome to get there, then we're not helping young people. We're not showing them the road to overcome. And it's a different road for every person. Maybe it's their one parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a neighbor, a school person, anyone 
that 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 they feel like they can go to and be mentored by makes a difference where they can feel safe, where they can feel encouraged, where they can feel supportive. And um, sometimes you can't find someone. Sometimes it's you. Mm. Sometimes you just have to talk to yourself. I mean, many times when I was in school, I didn't know anyone who went to college. I had 60 some first cousins. I had um, 20 aunts and uncles, some of them 15, 20 years older than I, but none of them had gone to college and they certainly didn't understand or could see the challenge of me going to San Jose State with over 20,000 students where many of the students didn't have to work. Mm -hmm. They were supported by their parents. They had cars, they had money, they had clothes um, to do what they wanted. And they had the absolute luxury of just learning. Mm. I had to work since I was five in the fields of San Jose, Santa Clara County, picking prunes, walnuts, strawberries, grapes. And that's how we earned our money to buy school clothes. But to be able to go to school and just learn is a luxury that is so underappreciated. Mm. But I wouldn't be the person that I am today. I wouldn't have the drive, the discipline, and the, um, I guess, the determination to help, to help other children and students because we don't need to work that hard. We can be successful. And so that is what I have tried to do for the last 50 years, try and be that person that sends that message to someone, women of color, men of color, but certainly women of color who have the hardest struggle can be their own mentor and they can look at other people to support them. Mm -hmm. In addition to um, that, the story, your, the story of success, but also that um, it is so important. It's actually part of what has been the gift to me of this podcast sort of coming into my life is telling the real stories that, that telling the stories that, um, that connect us, um, because we all have a story. Um, we all have gone through difficulty. Um, and when we don't, when we, when we don't allow the vulnerability to share those pieces of ourselves, then often we can seem unapproachable. What, whatever we've, like you said, whatever we've achieved may seem unachievable or our social media profiles, you know, everything looks picture perfect. And yet when we can com- connect and share our real story and our struggles and the things that we still struggle with, to me, that's, that's, that's the humanity where we can really connect with, with our hearts and really see truly see the person that may be sitting across from us. In addition to sharing your story, you talked about with, with your traveling trunk show and some of these other things <laughs> that you do in the schools that you really, um, the importance of connecting to native language, culture, ancestors, certainly you talked to us about how that was so powerful for you as a young woman. And of course, throughout your life, how, how, how are you, how is, what is your experience when you're bringing that to these like third graders, um, who, who get to that gift from you? Well, I want to first say that everything that I've done for the last 50 years has given me, I get more from doing that than I think I give to the students. It is so 
um, I get such a sense of purpose and I enjoy it. And I know I get a lot. It's reaffirming to what everything that I believe to go to the schools. I created um, a youth mariachi competition event at the Morgan Hill Historical Society. And I can tell you, frankly, it was a challenge. Mm -hmm. It continues to be a challenge. I also wrote a grant. These are all grants that are fully funded by county or another organization where um, I write grants and I say, please help us to bring this to the community, this conservative community, because we have a history that didn't begin in the 1850s. It began thousands and thousands of years ago. So I get a lot out of that. So what I do is I go to each classroom, third grade class, and I do an hour presentation on the Amamutsun tribe that's from the Morgan Hill Gilroy area. And the sad part is that most of the tribe cannot afford to live here any longer. So they live in Central Valley. But I have I'm in good communication and have a good relationship with the chairman, Val Lopez. But it's been a struggle even today to have Native peoples be able to stay in, the, in their ancestral lands. Mm -hmm. I have even a difficulty. I tried to get our historical society to write a land acknowledgement statement at every meeting. And I was voted down. Mm. So um, I was the only vote for yes. But yet, if we're a historical society, we need to embrace all communities, all the history, whether it's good, bad, whether it's ugly, whether it's inspiring, because otherwise we don't really know the story. It's a fantasy. You might as well just make it a, you know, a cartoon because it's not real. Mm. So I do that at the schools. And then um, I have written a grant that will allow me to expand it to fourth grade to cover the Spanish period. And that is critical too, because we're talking about the conquerors and the conquered, the Spanish that conquered the native peoples. And that at now we look into the Mexican period and the U.S. period. And we are uh, a combination of the conquered and the conquerors. And so we, we need to today more, more now than at any time with the division in our country, we need to embrace different languages, different cultures, and all different people. Because in the end, we really are the same. Mm -hmm. um, you can act like you're superior and you can say I'm superior. But saying it doesn't mean it's true. We are all equal and we should all be working together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pat, how would you, when, when you hear the word resilience, what, do, what does resilience mean to you? Well, I think immediately I, I, I picture bouncing back. Hmm. No matter what happens, you're going to, if you fall down, you get up. If you didn't accomplish what your goal was, you try again. Uh, if you uh, didn't get what you want, you just keep trying and trying and use different methods to reach your goal. And you bring in, depending on what that goal is, what that is that you want to accomplish, you, you just keep trying. Mm -hmm. Use different paths, the back door, the window, the roof, <laughs> the chimney. Um, if you live outside, behind the trees, by the river, you cross the stream, you do whatever you need to do to get to where you need to go. I love that. And also acknowledging with everything that we've talked about, um, how 
having the the right to your cultural identity being known and heard and spoken and understood when we push that down you know when i think about your grandmother bounce back well that was a much bigger bounce <laughs> um because of of the the racism and the the colonization um that that she um experienced so i you know there are some things i've been real i've been careful and and it's been interesting in these conversations to think about what's that inner resilience that we have um because we all do go through challenges and we all can try a different way and also where as a society as human beings are we blocking doors are we covering chimneys um to to make it more difficult for people to be able to do that bouncing back or bouncing back from things that they shouldn't have to bounce back from to begin with well i i think that for me the word resilience sort of describes what you're doing but really the word is survival mm. we will do whatever we need to do it's innate in most people to survive and so survive in whatever world whatever situation we find ourselves in and sometimes people the sad thing is that people will do whatever they can to survive but we also re- need to recognize that sometimes our own members of our own community will do what they think they need to do survive to survive but sometimes that looks like betrayal sometimes that looks like self-serving um interests because every culture every community has people within their community who have not stood up because it's hard to stand up it's hard to be alone it's hard to stand up to the powers that be and so i think sometimes i find myself judging other people and being more harsh why didn't you speak up what's wrong with you but then with conversations like i am having with you i have to recognize people see that as survival and they will do what they need to do to protect their children their families themselves and it may appear selfish and self-serving and yes to a certain degree it is but if you don't do what you need to do to survive how can you protect your family or those you love mhm and you know i i i want to point out that as you're talking about these grants and all these programs that you do this as a volunteer this is in addition to the the career that you've had um And so is it safe to say that part of how you continue to tap into your own survival resilience um to find meaning is through this giving back to your community mm-hmm. specifically around um this connection to Native American and Hispanic culture. Yes, it it reaffirms my resolve every time I go to a class and i see these third graders and i'm able to say what happened to the native americans and then they're they're so smart oh i just love being with kids but they're so smart they go well they're all gone mm. and so then i draw a big circle and i put half of it that shows my native american side and i say guess what we're still here <laughs> and you're still here because if you're from uh canada central america north america uh, you are native american and you need to be proud of that and look at and and the 
the light that goes on, you can see that in their face. Their mm-hmm. whole face lights up. They look at each other. And I point out children that look like my grandchildren. And I point out my little, a little girl that looks like my granddaughter who has, you know, blue green eyes and, and my grandson who has jet black hair and, and dark brown eyes. And I say, these two look like my grandchildren. So you never know who you are. You just have to ask and mm. cherish your language, cherish your heritage. And I think coming from a woman of color that's successful and that's volunteering to go and share that time with them really has an impact on them, but it has a bigger impact on me and reaffirms my raw resolve to continue. I, the hair stood up on my arms because we, when you talk about that resolve coming alive within yourself at 12 years old, and here you are decades later in your life, keeping that resolve. <laughs> you can alive. say many, many decades, later. <laughs> uh, but keeping that resolve alive by going back to kids around that age and younger, it's just, it just feels magical to me. Um, and just so special. So Kat, tell us about in, for those that are listening, that are local to Santa Clara County, specifically to Morgan Hill, you ha- and and I when we were before we started recording today, I said that I didn't think it was any mistake that we just both happened to be available for today's recording on the day September fifteenth that starts National Hispanic Month. Um, tell us about the Dia de los Muertos event that's coming that you, that you've uh, started um, that will be next month for people to check out. Yes, this will be the third Dia de los Muertos at the Morgan Hill House site. It's called Via Miramonte, and it is on October 29th and October 30th. We will have six altars there for anyone in the community to come and visit and bring three up to three items that remind them of a loved one, whether it's family or friends. They're, they all need to be either copies of pictures or favorite foods anything that you want, but we don't return them sadly. And the hours are from noon to three and it's open to anyone in the community. We have little butterflies that we allow you to go ahead and write a special message to your loved one and put it on the altar. We do have, um, uh, candles that flameless candles that we would let you use. You can bring flowers, whatever reminds you of that loved one. We know that last year we had some pan dulce, which is Mexican sweetbread. People brought that and they laid it on the altar and the birds came and shared it with us to Mm. just remember our loved ones. And this celebration of Dia de los Muertos is not Halloween. It's not All Saints Day and it's not related to the church, though some of the church have sort of taken it over. It's been practiced in the Americas for over 3,000 years. And it used to be celebrated the whole month of August. Today, modernly, you see a lot of skeletons and La La Catrina, but that's really only been in the last hundred years. And it's sort of been a little commercialized. But as long as you remember that we're there to remember our loved ones that we've lost, then that's the message that we send. We're sharing that with the whole community so that you can be there and remember your loved ones. Thank you for sharing that. And I know I will be there. Oh, and it's free. And it's it's free. free. I know that I will come by with, um, with my daughters to, to add to those altars, our loved ones. I thank you so much for, for joining me and being willing to share your story. Um, and I, I know we'll be talking again soon because when we met, we learned about other connections that we have and, um, looking forward to opportunities to join in and support your work. 
Thanks for and being thank here. you. Thank you for having this series that you participate in because you've made me think about why I'm the person that I am, mm-hmm. which sometimes we're so busy in life and really don't think so. You know, so this has really helped me. It's always helping me to affirm again my resolve to continue my work. Thank you so much. Thanks for all that you do. I hope that you were inspired by my conversation with Kat. I know that I was, and certainly acknowledge um, that as a white woman interviewing uh, Kat, there's a lot about her experience that I can't truly understand or um, certainly grew up and still experience privileges um, that Kat as a woman of color does not. But also, and maybe more so, really inspired by the opportunity to sit, to hear her story, to leave space uh, for um, her to speak about her culture and how that connection to her culture, starting as a young girl, was so instrumental in her feeling empowered in building her resolve in that led her to be able to awaken her innate drive towards choice and seeing a path of success for herself, which as she mentioned was through education. And as I reflect on this in my life, in my community, in the workplace, how are we leaving making room at the table. So many organizations and companies right now are prioritizing diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in a way that is different than perhaps it had been in the past. And the importance of within the workplace, within communities, within schools, that we offer opportunity for connection to native language, to culture, to experience, to allowing people to have a voice that may be difficult to hear. It may be challenging the norms that we've become accustomed to, particularly as white leaders and white-led organizations. How are we contributing to creating cultural barriers and barriers for people to really tap into their authentic resilience, their authentic selves, and where are there ways to create opportunity to support that. Really important conversations and conversations that we need to be doing together with people of color, marginalized groups, with vulnerability, uh, curiosity, authenticity, and just creating space. So I hope this has allowed you to think about where you might create space, where you may tap into your own resolve to step into that space if you're 
um, a person that feels that you have something to say and that each of us can think about our connection to our own culture, to what led us to tap into our resilience from when we were young, who, who inspired your resolve and how are we giving that to our employees, to our community, to our children. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Pathways to Resilience, an initiative of Community Solutions. For more information, please visit our website, www.communitysolutions.org.